Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with weather. As powerful and damning evidence piles up before our eyes, there will be a criminal referral of Donald Trump to the Department of Justice by the House Select Committee investigating the January 6th insurrection. Joining us is Lincoln Mitchell, a professor of political science at Columbia University, where he also serves as an associate scholar in the Salzman Institute of War and Peace Studies. He's the author of numerous books on the former Soviet states, baseball and democracy, the latest of which is The Giants and Their City, Major League Baseball in San Francisco, 1976 to 1992. We will examine the critical tipping point for democracy and the rule of law America and the world faces as criminals and kleptocrats like Putin, Mohammed bin Salman, Erdogan, Orban and Marcos increasingly wield power while Trump tries to regain power. Then we'll assess what the Democrats can do as they face a perfect storm of economic gloom with rising interest rates, record inflation and a looming recession. Joining us is Richard Parker, who teaches economics and public policy at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government and is a senior fellow at the Shorenstein Center. He's the former managing editor of Ramparts, was co-founder of Mother Jones magazine, and serves on the editorial board of The Nation. His books include The Myth of the Middle Class and John Kenneth Galbraith, His Life, His Politics, His Economics. Then finally, with the Supreme Court about to take away women's reproductive rights, strike down gun safety laws in blue states, gut environmental protection against global warming, and strip voting rights, we'll look into an organization, Take Back the Court, that is mobilizing the American majority against the tyranny of the far-right-wing minority, just starting to enact its reactionary agenda. Joining us is Sarah Lipton-Lubet, the Executive Director of the Take Back the Court Action Fund, who for nearly two decades has been an advocate for reproductive freedom, gender equity, and progressive change. Most recently, she served as Vice President for Reproductive Health and Rights at the National Partnership for Women and Families. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now is Lincoln Mitchell, a professor of political science at Columbia University, where he also serves as an associate scholar in the Salzman Institute of War and Peace Studies. He's the author of numerous books on the former Soviet states, baseball and democracy, the latest of which is The Giants and Their City, Major League Baseball in San Francisco, 1976 to 1992. Welcome to Background Briefing, Lincoln Mitchell. Thank you for having me back. Always good to be here. Well, thanks for joining us. And it feels in many ways that the bad guys could win. Putin could win just through sheer brutality in Ukraine. And Trump could win through the incredible right-wing grift that's underway, uh, shaking down his uh, followers, his gullible MAGA followers for money. He's got a huge slush fund. 
he's intimidating the Republican candidates into supporting him uh, and those that support him, that he endorses by and large are successful nominees in this primary process, which is controlled largely by the right wing of the party, which Trump controls. So it's an amazing thing to watch how Trump's sort of using grift and criminality to make a political comeback at the very same time that the House Select Committee is exposing his criminality. So what's going to happen here? The better angels going to emerge or are the bad guys going to win? Well, the bad guys frequently win. You know, we have this perception that, that you know, justice always wins out and, and the wheels of justice grind true. But, but you know, they, they a lot can happen before you get these blips when things are going all right. And right now, the if you ask that question slightly differently and say, what needs to happen for just domestically for the United States to become a meaningful, legitimate democracy? And you may or may not add the word again to that sentence. So much needs to happen that I think, it, frankly, it's very unlikely. You, you mentioned how so many of these Trump-backed people are winning primaries on the Republican side, but even the ones who aren't the high-profile Trump-backed people, you know, uh, the, the, the Dr. Oz in Pennsylvania, Herschel Walker in Georgia, even the kind of ordinary Republicans, they still largely believe in the big lie, right? One of the things the January 6th committee has not done well is to show the degree that the entire Republican Party was complicit in this leading up to January 6th. It wasn't until December 14th, December 14th, that Mitch McConnell recognized that Joe Biden had won the election. So things are bad. Uh, if we are, if we really want things to get better, we have to understand that this is a struggle that is much bigger than the next election cycle. That if we work, you know, with everything we have to manage to hold on to the uh, Democratic majority in the Senate, which would mean 51 votes, because right now it's a de jure, but not a de facto Democratic majority, you know, we still haven't solved the problem. The, the MAGA movement, the deep authoritarian nature, the, the deep grift that is the, the Trump uh, movement is very, very powerful. And nothing in these January 6th committee hearings is changing that. But when you say the Republicans believe in the big lie, I suspect that a lot of them don't believe in the big lie, but they have to go along with the big lie because that's the mafia kind of godfather tactics that Trump is using. He's got this war chest and he's threatening them. And if they don't go along with him, they'll be vilified, you know, well, and we've seen it happen. We've seen it happen uh, just uh, recently in South Carolina with a congressman who voted um, against him after January the 6th. Well, a couple of things there. I can't know what's going on in Kevin McCarthy's head or Mitch McConnell's head or any Republican's head. And for that, I'm, I'm frankly grateful, right? I can only know what they say and do, not why they say and do it. So, They've every Republican. You're right. Some of them have, you know, the, the dramatic step of voting to impeach a guy who led an insurrection onto the Capitol, which we shouldn't think of as a radical step. But they many Republicans, almost all of them had so many opportunities to stop Donald Trump. And every time they've decided it isn't worth it. Is that because of cowardice? Is it because of fear, which are similar uh, sentiments? Is it because of something else? I don't know that that matters. I don't know that it matters if you if you present as if you're a MAGA Trump person long enough, you simply 
become a MAGA Trump person long enough. And the other thing I would say is this. There are worse things in life than losing an election, losing your country, losing your democracy, losing your integrity. But anybody who thinks that winning their little Republican primary to be in the House of Representatives and be a backbencher is so important that they're going to go along with whatever Donald Trump says. Effectively, they are on board with whatever Donald Trump says, and they are deeply part of the Trump movement at that point. Well, Liz Cheney recently said that uh, someday Trump will go away, but the dishonor of these Republicans will live on. Do you think that resonated in any way? Well, it resonated with a lot of people who are Democrats. You know, I mean, they <laughs> right, very, but I meant on they the other side. Stuff. Well, I think she's onto something, but maybe not what what most people think she's onto, because she's right. Trump is, to paraphrase the congresswoman in this district where I'm sitting, to quote the, the congresswoman in the district where I'm sitting now, morbidly obese. He's in his late 70s. If Trump were 17 years old and, ate and exercised the way he did, you'd be worried about him. But he's much older than that. So he's in poor health. We know that. We know that from the way he looks, the way he, he presents all that. He's not going to be around forever. That is, that is just a reality about all of us. But if you've gone this far down the Trump road, down the road with him, what you're going to do is not... Yes, the dishonor lives on, but what you do is you commit yourself to covering for it. So you have to redouble your efforts to make sure that, you know, if Trump doesn't, isn't the president, Ron DeSantis is, because you don't want to be exposed. So I think she's right that the dishonor lives on, but what that does is that mobilizes or that motivates Republican politicians in particular to even to make sure that, that Trumpism wins out, not to kind of back away and do the right thing, as Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger and a very small handful of others are doing. Well, Lincoln Mitchell, you brought up Ron DeSantis, and I guess you could put him in the category that uh, there's, uh, there's something even worse than Trump, because he's, he's cleverer than Trump. Trump is cunning, but not smart and reckless and emotionally unstable and mentally uh, unsound. So this guy is smart, educated, but ruthless. He has really overt authoritarian tendencies, and he can't stand any criticism, and he's quite brutal about putting people down. He's a terrifying prospect. So And now, he, and now he's got the support of uh, the richest man in the world who'll, who's likely to take over an important uh, social media platform, uh, Twitter. Well, that, that's, that's right. And... If you, you know, you could substitute, I think you're right about Ron DeSantis. And, and it's clear to me that if Donald Trump is unable to run for president, that Ron DeSantis would be the re likely Republican nominee. He'd be the front runner. But you could also put in a lot of other people who are, you know, and we could put Josh Hawley. Much of what you've said about Ron DeSantis is true about Josh Hawley. It's true about Tom Cotton. It's true about Ted Cruz. It's true about so many of these Republican politicians. And what that tells you is that this is a movement that was certainly started and facilitated and made possible by Donald Trump, but is today much bigger than Donald Trump. It is the Republican Party, which is to say it is a movement that has 40% or so of the American people supporting it. If, if uh, let's say that you know Mitt Romney were president now or something like that in his second term, and Donald Trump or someone like Ron DeSantis was challenging him in a primary and had 10% of the vote, we'd say, wow, we're worried about a real nasty authoritarian fascist movement brewing in American politics. And now it's taken over one party and is poised to win back control of Congress. So we are in a situation where I think the, the first step to, re, to, to solving the problems facing the United States is 
to recognize the problem. And the problem, yes, Donald Trump is enormously part of the problem, but his problem is not just what happened on January 6th. The problem is what led up to it. And the problem is that the year and a half after it, the official position of the Republican Party, the unofficial position of the Republican Party, is that it was trespassing. It was a tourist event. It wasn't a big deal. Let's move on because more gas being $6 a gallon in some places is more important than the president of the United States trying to overthrow an election. Well, that is, unfortunately, a winning ticket, it seems, in terms of the, the zeitgeist now that... Biden's poll numbers sink every day. They get, they're down to, what, 38% or something. He's weighed down by inflation, driven by the price of gas and food, etc., which in part is Putin's responsible for, along with Mohammed bin Salman and Mohammed bin Zayed, the allies in OPEC Plus with Putin. And Biden has to go hat in hand to Saudi Arabia in July to beg this little entitled punk to turn on the, the oil spigot it's a sad situation, and there seems to be a perfect storm of economic gloom heading Biden's way. And if you think about James Carville's adage that it's the economy stupid, what in the hell are the Democrats going to do to stop a wipeout in 2022? Well, I sure hope I can imagine driving along, listening to this conversation. Whoever is driving along, listening to this is going to be I don't think they've ever heard two such upbeat people talking on the radio in their lives. Um, you, the other, the other piece of course is just, this is just one of those, it's the, it's a midterm and the president's party always lose the midterm. So even if things were going okay, he would still expect, expect to take a hit. What, what this, the only strategy the Democrats have here is not about, you know, bringing the gas price of gas back down to 350 a gallon. Cause that's, I don't think that's going to happen. Right. The other piece that's driving it up and driving inflation is COVID and the kind of long, long impact of COVID. But what Democratic Party candidates can do is to try to shift the topic of conversation. If this election is about the price of gas and inflation, it will be a, a wipeout. The, the Democrats, the Republicans will wipe the floor with the Democrats. If this election is about gun reform and abortion rights, the Democrats will lose. I mean, I'm not, I don't want to be too optimistic here, but they won't lose as badly. And the agenda setting is something that the president used to be able to do. Joe Biden has has not been able to do that. And I, I think we have to be, be frank here. I mean, a lot of these things are happening to Joe Biden, but he's still the president. And he has not framed this. He has not framed the politics here in a way that helps him. He has never controlled the narrative in a way that Donald Trump always was able to do. Donald Trump woke up in the morning, tweeted something strange and erratic. And for the next six hours, the media responded to the strange and erratic tweet that Donald Trump had made. People, I think, elected Joe Biden because they wanted a president who wasn't in their kind of living rooms and in their psyches all the time. But 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 Biden has kind of gone too far with that. This is somebody who doesn't kind of, so to speak, command the room of American political life the way Trump did, the way Obama did, uh, the way George W. Bush did. Well, you mentioned that the Democrats should run on uh, abortion rights and uh, gun reform. How about running on preserving American democracy and stopping a fascist takeover of the United States? Well, you would think that would be something that the American people would rally around. Um, but but the evidence is really mixed on that, right? I mean, there are forty percent of the people that are fine. With, they don't want democracy, clearly, clearly. Uh, and we are seeing, you know, we'll see. But but these 
these public hearings are a real test run of that. If this doesn't move the electorate, the polling numbers, then running on it, then you can't run on this. From an electoral strategy, you can't run it. The other piece of it is that while much of the messaging around the crisis of democracy focuses, in my view, way too much on this person of Donald Trump, singularly on the person of Donald Trump, rather than on the, the, the problem of a Republican Party that is essentialism taken over by an authoritarian movement. And lastly, you know, the nature of American elections are strange because most of us who will go to vote, uh, you know, in, in November will not vote in competitive races, right? So it particularly, you know, when you're talking about a presidential election, people always say, you know, well, you know, can so-and-so win the election? The real question is, you know, what does what does the 10% of swing voters in 10 key states, many which are smaller states, how will they see this election? And the same thing is true in the House races, right? So it's really what are the swing voters in the 40 or 50 key swing districts and the handful of Senate races? So most Americans are effectively spectators in this one. Well, going back to Putin and this hideous war in Ukraine and your a scholar of the Soviet Union and the successor state of Russia. R recently, Putin invoked the idea of capture, recapturing and fortifying Russian lands, lost Russian lands, claiming the mantle of Peter the Great. So the whole situation there has changed, and you see the propaganda line in Russian media changing overnight. They've literally turned 180 degrees on, on a dime previously saying it was all about uh, liberating Ukraine from the Nazis and the encroachment of NATO and all that. That was the original excuse. But now the propagandists in in Russia are now talking about Russia's new you know, duty to reclaim its lands, etc., its lost lands and restore its glory. So that's an example of how propaganda can capture a nation and even though the, what's happening in the name of the Russian people is just so disgusting and brutal, they're destroying a country, and Putin probably won't stop until he's destroyed the whole damn country. Um, we have a propaganda outfit here in the United States that is similar to Russian propaganda, the Pravda of the Republican Party, Fox News. So in the context of this conversation, Lincoln Mitchell, can you hold Rupert Murdoch as responsible as anybody for what's happening here? Because if you say 40% of Americans don't believe in democracy, those 40%, I'm sure, are in the right-wing Fox News bubble. So, And that is completely manufactured propaganda. And I think that somehow these American propagandists, just like the Russian ones, should be held uh, accountable. Well... Certainly from an analytical perspective, absolutely. In my view, the two people that are most responsible for the decline of American democracy in the last decade or so are Rupert Murdoch and Mitch McConnell. And Rupert Murdoch runs a propaganda machine, and it has been extremely, extremely destructive. But by held accountable, by whom? What does that mean, right? So you and I on a radio show can discuss this, and I think that many people would agree with us, but it's not going to change. And, and that's the problem. And then now, fortunately, this isn't Russia, right? There are other media outlets out there where you don't have to, where you can get opinions besides Fox. But what Fox shows us is the power of propaganda. Even when people know it's propaganda, it's still very powerful. And that is, and 
And Fox, you know, when you watch Fox, it's not just a propaganda network. It is a pro it's almost a whole world, right? It's got celebrities, people like Tucker Carlson and Sean Hannity that the rest of the country just thinks of as fringe characters. It's got even fringier characters. It's got, you know, it's advertising different products. It's, it's telling, it's presenting a visually different America. If you watch Fox News, you think that, you know, every American city is just riven by crime and violence. You would never know if you're a middle-aged person that every American city is, is much, much safer than when you were growing up, you know? So it's, it's really bringing people in and framing a different reality for them. And then they live in that reality. And in that reality, Trump is, is their leader. But do they want a fascist country? Do they want this country to be a one-party state modeled on Viktor Orban's Hungary? It's not a hard—I mean, I mean that, that's a tough question to answer because, you know, who's the they in that question? There is certainly a chunk of, of you know, the Steve Bannons and, and the Sebastian Gorkas, right, who, who has deep roots in kind of Nazi politics in Hungary, um, who do want that, right? And they are in very, very, very influential, particularly Steve Bannon. Um, then there are people, I mean, one thing that, that may be hard to really process, it's hard for me to process sometimes, is that there is a large chunk of the country who believe that Joe Biden is a communist, right? Who believe, or socialist, words they use interchangeably, that, that Joe Biden is one step away from the gulag and that the, the threat represented by African-American, you know, Black Lives Matter activists and trans people and, 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 you know, same sex couples with children, uh, all being orchestrated, you know, by the Jews, uh, is, is such a great threat to America that they will vote for anything against that. And that is, that's at the core of the Tucker Carlson message, the Fox news message. And so those people would never say, I want, many of them would never say, I want to live in a fascist country, but they want to say, I want to preserve America from this existential threat, and we need tough, good Americans to stand up to it, and that, in their warped worldview, lands them on people like Ron DeSantis and Donald Trump. Well, Lincoln Mitchell, on that cheery note, <laughs> I thank you for joining us here today. My, my pleasure. I'm sure you always bring me on for my optimism, so I'm happy to deliver. <laughs> and again, I've been speaking with Lincoln Mitchell, who's a professor of political science at Columbia University, where he also serves as an associate scholar in the Salzman Institute for War and Peace Studies, an expert on the former Soviet Union and Russia. He is the author of numerous books on the former Soviet states, baseball and democracy, and he's late, the latest of which is The Giants in Their City, Major League Baseball in San Francisco, 1976 to 1992. We're going to take a brief station break and back with, with an assessment of what the Democrats can do as they face a perfect storm of economic gloom with rising interest rates, record inflation, and looming recession. Well, I met you on election night As we cried over our beer Nothing you could do would cheer me up Broke up later that year Well, how come you and I aren't winners? 
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Richard Parker, who teaches economics and public policy at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government and is a senior fellow in the Shorenstein Center. He also is the former managing editor of Ramparts, was a co-founder of Mother Jones magazine, and serves on the editorial board of The Nation. His books include The Myth of the Middle Class and John Kenneth Galbraith, His Life, His Politics, His Economics. Welcome to Background Briefing. Richard Good Parker. to be with you. Well, thanks for joining us. And uh, this just a few days ago, the Fed raised the interest rates by uh, three quarters of a point, and uh, mm-hmm. the economy just looks more and more gloomy for the Democrats. Mm-hmm. You've got war in Ukraine, obviously driving up oil prices, and that's a big driver of inflation. Yeah. And uh, obviously, it raising interest rates is going to slow things down, uh, certainly hurts working families. And it just, you know, if you go back to uh, James Carville's adage, it's the economy stupid in terms of elections, is there any way that the Democrats can avoid a rout in November? That's, it's difficult to figure out how that's going to happen. I think that there are two, three elements one of which is that the ghostly presence of Donald Trump uh, across even the midterms, not alone, not the uh, presidential coming up, but these midterms, does incentivize a substantial block of voters on both sides. I mean, I think that Carvel's right in general about the centrality of the economy, but I think you also have to take account of the, the role that Donald Trump is playing in American politics in exciting uh, uh, fear and uh, excitement on the two sides of the political divide. I think the other is that we don't know where this Ukraine war is going to be as we get closer to the elections and what the sense of America's vulnerability is um, uh, by the time we get to uh, the fall. So while the economy is important, I think that there are other factors. There are also essentially uh, social uh, uh, factors like uh, the Supreme Court's likely ruling on abortion, which is going to have a tremendous effect on uh, uh, voting behavior and also donations, um, uh, which is not tied directly to the economy. So in this particular election, I wouldn't put as much emphasis as Carvel did back in 1992 on the economy, although I do think that it's central and uh, has to be of enormous concern. I think having said all that, then the question is uh, how much of this uh, economic turmoil and how much of what is being blamed on the Biden administration then filters back into individual races. And um, I think that you'll see a lot of individual members of Congress from both parties coming up with strong ideas of their own about what should be done in order to carve out a space, uh, particularly on the Democratic side, that gives them some distance from the White House. Um, The Republicans are going to continue to hammer White House, White House, White House. But, um, you know, they're going to also be called to called to account for what it is it what is it that they plan to do to bring inflation under control. So you mentioned the uh, war in Ukraine. Is there a way then for Biden and the Democrats to tie Trump to Putin, in, not in the sense that the Russians helped elect Trump in 2016, but in the way that Putin is a complete criminal and a war criminal to boot, and he's just right. destroying a country and will continue right. to do so. So by November, presumably, 
it will still be a disaster and, and a humanitarian catastrophe. Uh, and, right. and literally, we're watching a country being murdered before our eyes. And I think people are rightly outraged. But Trump is also a criminal, and that's what the uh, select committee in the House is showing in absolutely, I think, un unambiguous ways. They talked about it's not just about, you know, the big steal, but it's also the big ripoff with how he took, you know, raised $250 million based on a lie, which he knew was a lie because all these top aides told him that he'd lost the election. And now, as you can see what he's doing, it's, he's acting like a mafia boss. He's intimidating right. the Republicans in the right. primaries into having to uh, toe the line with him and stick with the stop the steal. So, well, I mean, yeah, there are two things I'd say there. And one is that the way you know this as well as I do, if not better than I do, which is American media can only absorb a limited number of narratives at any given moment. And I think until the January 6th committee and its implications are played out, the ability to introduce the Putin connection or the Putin responsibility uh, and tie it to Trump is very much more attenuated. Um, so you know, that's a that's a problem in terms of the way we message. I mean, one of the tragedies for me of the way we message is that the that you can't even keep the Ukraine war at the top of the news uh, anymore. Uh, it was overwhelmed initially by Johnny Depp and Amber Heard's trial. But, you know, if you look at the top 10 stories in the major dailies these days, it's it's rare to see the Ukraine showing up as one of the top five, and on some days, not even in the top 10. So we've got a problem, which is that there may be too many fronts that are open at once to be able to effectively know how to manage any one of them, uh, given the ways in which the uh, other fronts play into the aggregate impact on, on, on the vote in November. So I guess what I'm saying is, look, there's there's a reason not to think that we're going to be uh, devastated in the way that we were in 2010, where uh, there were something like 65 or 70 House and Senate seats lost two years after uh, Barack Obama was elected. But I also think that we need to prepare ourselves, certainly, for a House that's Republican. And I think the open question now is whether the Senate is going to be Republican, too. And, and in some sense, I'm more anxious, given the role of the Senate in confirming uh, uh, Supreme Court seats, um, that the Senate remain uh, Democratic rather than the, than the House, if I had to make a choice. Right. Well, if that were to happen, and McConnell would become majority leader, and, and if one of the remaining justices in the minority on the Supreme Court. I'm sure that McConnell would block Biden's nominee just as right. he blocked uh, right. Merrick Garland, uh, who was Obama's right. nominee. So, right. But I, I was bringing up the, the connection between Trump and Putin more in the light that Putin is a fascist leader who uses propaganda in a, in a powerful and ubiquitous way to the extent that the Russian people are kept in the dark about this catastrophe next door in Ukraine, and they lied to about it. Initially, that it was supposed to be liberating the country from Nazis and stopping the encroachment of NATO, but now now it's the new Peter the Great restoring Russian lands, all of which, you know, they've turned on a dime because they that's what propaganda can do when it's controlled yep. by a dictator. And we have it in this country, not we have... Obviously, we have more diversity in our press than they do in Russia, where there's zero diversity. 
but we mm. do have Fox News and we do have 40% of the country who are not particularly invested in democracy itself. And the Republicans mm -hmm. under Trump have made it clear that the fascist in Hungary, Viktor Orban, is their role model. So mm -hmm. that's the connection that I see. And I think the Democrats should have their hair on fire and they should be telling the American people, this is where we're heading. Wake up, ladies and gentlemen. Mm -hmm. So I think that the message about the dangers to democracy are really, really well established and have been for several years in what I think of as the top third of the, uh, of the voting uh, community. Uh, and I'm not sure how much further you can push it down as an issue or as the lead issue. I do think that having some sense that the economy's inflationary tendencies or stagflationary tendencies are coming under control is really what's central. Now, Biden has floated a couple of sort of traditionally progressive ideas about the oil companies making mega profits, about uh, issues uh, involving uh, excessive concentration in specific industries, uh, things that should be resonating if they were being pursued a lot more fully or a lot more frankly by other Democrats and by the press. I mean, the press has allow in, in essence is allowing him to raise this perspective on deep structural flaws in both the u.s and the global economy but they aren't pursuing it in particular um you know they're kind of content to uh, think that it's simply a question of supply and demand that's determining oil prices right now and in fact that's not the case this is an industry that is quite oligopolistically managed and it's essentially managed by a combination of governments, uh, national governments, and uh, private uh, oil, for a handful of private oil firms. Um, and w w if I were to do anything, I would try to link Putin to uh, MBS in uh, Saudi Arabia. Uh, and the idea that what you have is a, a, a cabal or a coalition of, uh, of uh, quasi-fascists, or whatever you want to call them, autocrats. Um, Fascism and feudalism. Yep. Mm. yep. Uh, and that it, it's that it's that broader sort of structure so that what you're looking for in telling the tale is a way of giving people a sense of what we're up against globally, not just in terms of what we're up against in terms of Putin. And again, I'm speaking with Richard Parker, who teaches economics and public policy at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government and is a senior fellow at the Shorenstein Center. He's the former managing editor of Ramparts, was a co-founder of Mother Jones magazine and serves on the editorial board of The Nation. His books include The Myth of the Middle Class and John Kenneth Galbraith, His Life, His Politics, His Economics. Well, you know, Trump had used Twitter so effectively that he'd wake up mm -hmm. in the morning and have some ridiculous idea and he'd tweet about it and the press would just seize on it and speak about it all day long. Biden doesn't seem to have that ability, either right. on camera or off camera, to shape the narrative. Is there anything that can be done, do you think, in the next few months to step up the White House's game? In that well, regard? I mean, I, yeah, I mean, I think, I think that trying to find a, a unified message that's carried by a lot of surrogates other than Biden is absolutely central to this. And, you know, the more the, the progressive elements of the press move on to the thematic issues that would actually bring out a five or 10 percent of the electorate who might be inclined to vote Biden uh, or for vote for Democratic candidates uh, in this coming cycle, but who, for one reason or another, are disillusioned 
uh, is, I think, the real issue. I think that a lot of us have got to be saying to a lot of voters who are either new voters or uh, lukewarm voters uh, in this last cycle, that if you thought what was happening uh, in the 2020 election was important, and it certainly looks like that to it looks like that to most Americans, given the level of voter turnout, this coming uh, midterm election and the next presidential election are central to the future of the country that we love. Um, and I think putting it in those terms and and getting it out of Biden's mouth so that the press has to pay attention to senators and to demonstrations of groups of one kind or another and of campaigns that are being launched around issues that can range from guns to abortion to uh, baby formula to, I mean, run down the list. The idea is to get more voices raised loudly saying we have got to get every living human being that we can to the polls in November. Well, let me run down the list. The right-wing reactionary Supreme Court is about to take away women's reproductive rights, gun safety mm-hmm. rights in blue states, environmental mm-hmm. protection to deal with global warming and the future of the planet and our grandchildren mm-hmm. and children, and federal mm-hmm. voting rights, handing vote-counting power to partisan Republican legislatures. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's mm-hmm. it. I mean, it, they'll, yeah. they'll be coming thick and fast, these rulings, yeah. in the next few weeks. And I think that it's really quite important to then go beyond the statement of the objective fact of what's going to happen to draw a personal uh, uh, linkage uh, to uh, in people's minds so that what's being said by a leader is, look, these are the things that we're facing. And this is how I think it's going to affect you and your family and your community. Because I think that second link is what has too often been missing in a lot of Democratic policy proposals recently. The Democrats have done some amazing things uh, legislatively in the time that Biden has been in office, but they've been weakly connected to people's lives. They, they remain at a level of policy abstraction that may be attractive to someone at the Kennedy School or at the uh, Woodrow Wilson School or any of a number of other places where uh, people study policy, but they aren't resonating, it seems to me, in enough households where policy is not the first thing that people discuss when they sit down for dinner. So just in the last couple of minutes, then, Richard Parker, the co-chair of the House Select Committee investigating January the 6th, Congresswoman Liz Cheney, in the first hearings said that Donald Trump will someday go away, but the the dishonor for Republicans will live on. Is there a possibility of a message that both Democratic progressives could live with or be inspired by and uh, that could also reach independents and disaffected Republicans? I, I think it's about three things. I think it's about teasing out of what Biden has done already, the way in which this affects American families and American communities. I think there needs to be much more personalization of the impact of the courageous things that Biden has done so far, and those things which are which he's trying to do, which have been blocked largely by the Republican Party. I mean, we've fallen into the habit of blaming cinema and mansion when the blame is on McConnell and all of the votes that McConnell controls in the Republican Party. And I think that we haven't been clear enough about what it means uh, for communities and families and futures 
uh, in a way that sounds humane and engaged in improving people's lives where they live, not in terms of abstract values, but where they live. And, you know, talk about the way that wages have gone up. Talk about the amount of money that the, the PPP and the individual uh, support checks uh, brought to American families. Talk about the number of children that were uh, brought out of poverty, if only temporarily, and could be brought out of poverty permanently if we were to enact legislation that Biden has on the table. I think those are the, those are the things that you need to do, which is to talk about what the meat is. That these, propo- that these proposals and these actions represent, not as titles of bills, not as, sl- not as initials of programs, uh, but instead how it is that you will benefit and your uh, country will benefit uh, going forward uh, if we can continue on this path. And this is the path that will be abandoned, and the alternative path is far more dangerous Uh, for you and for those you love. Well, Richard Parker, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Richard Parker, who teaches economics and public policy at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government and is a senior fellow at the Shorenstein Center. He's a former managing editor of Ramparts, was a co-founder of Mother Jones magazine and serves on the editorial board of The Nation. And his books include The Myth of the Middle Class and John Kenneth Galbraith, His Life, His Politics, his economics. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking into the organization Take Back the Courts as the Supreme Court moves to take away women's reproductive rights, strike down gun safety laws in blue states, gut environmental protection against global warming, and strip voting rights. Outside the patient millions Put them into power Expect a little more back for their taxes Like school books, beds in hospitals And peace in our bloody time All they get is old men grinding Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Sarah Lipton-Lubet, who is the Executive Director of the Take Back the Court Action Fund, who for nearly two decades has been an advocate for reproductive freedom, gender equity, and progressive change. Most recently, she served as Vice President for Reproductive Health and Rights at the National Partnership for Women and Families. Welcome to Background Briefing, Sarah Lipton-Lubet. Thank you so much for having me. So, Sarah, the Supreme Court is about to take away women's reproductive rights, and they could also take away gun safety rights in blue states in the New York case. They could also take away the Environmental Protection Agency's ability to deal with global warming, which is the greatest threat to our future and our children and grandchildren. And they are also about to take away the federal government's ability to stop uh, Republican partisan legislatures from essentially counting the vote and deciding who wins based on partisanship as opposed to the count. So this is just, if you look at that bill of particulars in total, it's absolutely beyond alarming. And then you have to add to that Stephen Bannon's idea of deconstructing the regulatory state is also a huge part of their agenda, where essentially they've already gone after the ability of the CDC to regulate. 
uh, ability of OSHA. And of course, if they go after the EPA as well, that's an enormous assault on the government's ability to use expertise in anything to do with public health, uh, public safety, and the public in general. So this is a very radical court that is just beginning to really flex its uh, muscles in its supermajority's six to three power. So without putting you on the spot, you're taking on, right, uh, with your organization, take back the court. You're taking on this, (laughs) what I've just said, right? What you said is is exactly right. This court that we're faced with right now is an existential threat to our democracy, to our fundamental rights, to our freedom. And that is not an exaggeration. It, it is the most radical court that we have had in decades. And as you said, they're just getting started. When we look at the enormity of what they are trying to do, in terms of enacting a radical Republican agenda by judicial fiat from the bench in just this one year. Abortion rights, safety from gun violence, the ability to do anything to tackle the crisis that is climate change, the ability of the federal government to function and address the problems of the modern era. I mean, they want to take us back a century at least. Um, This is one of the most critical problems facing the American public today. So in terms of your organization, then, Take Back the Court, tell us what your plan is here, because obviously we've just laid out the most monumental problems that, that we're facing with this radical court. And most of our audience probably is feeling paralyzed and powerless. So walk us through how your organization, Take Back the Court, uh, can try and at least redress this situation and push back against this juggernaut. I'm so glad you asked that because they want people to feel powerless. That is part of the plan. Um, They want us to feel like there's nothing we can do, that this is preordained, that we have to sit back for the next 30 years, 40 years, uh, and, and watch our country and our rights disintegrate and crumble. And that is just not the case. So my organization, Take Back the Court, we came together several years ago when it became so clear the agenda Um, that the radical conservatives uh, on the Supreme Court had in mind when it became clear that this court was an existential threat to democracy to say there actually is a solution. And that solution is expanding the Supreme Court. So what we're working toward is very simple legislation and it's just legislation. It's not a constitutional amendment. It's a plain old statute that would add four seats to the Supreme Court and wrest control away um, from the radical right-wing ideologues that are trying to dismantle our democratic institutions. You know, the size of the Supreme Court is something that is set by Congress. That has always been the case. Congress has changed the size of the court previous times during our history. It's happened multiple times before. Uh, And with a court as just frankly, out of control as it is right now, 
it is incumbent upon Congress to act again to set the size of the court and to increase it. And does this require the Democrats getting a greater majority in the Senate and the House? I mean, the conventional wisdom is that they're going to lose the House in November. Look, with every action this court takes, it becomes more and more clear to more and more people around the country um, what a threat it is, what a threat the Republican Party that put it in place is. Uh, and, and people are rising up and they're reacting. I don't think we can say um, what is going to happen once this court overturns Roe v. Wade and the fundamental right to abortion, the fundamental right to control what happens with our bodies, with our futures. Um, th- this is this is going to be a, a momentous um have momentous impact um, this summer, and and I think we're going to see that uh, ripple through in all sorts of ways. And again, I'm speaking with Sarah Lipton Lubet, who's the executive director of the Take Back the Court Action Fund, who for nearly two decades has been an advocate for reproductive freedom, gender equity, and progressive change. Most recently, she served as vice president for reproductive health and rights at the National Partnership for Women and Families. So. Let's look at the court itself. I mean, not just what's on the docket and these radical rulings that are about to come down, which will basically, as you've pointed out, destroy women's rights, gun rights in blue states, the EPA's ability to deal with global warming, and the federal government to deal with voter suppression in these upcoming elections. I mean, there's a, an article by Nina Totenberg, the NPR longtime court watcher, suggesting that the Supreme Court is within is seething with resentment and fear behind the scenes. We know there's kind of a, a witch hunt going on with the federal marshals trying to find out who leaked the abortion decision. But there's also apparently a power struggle between Clarence Thomas and uh, the Chief Justice John Roberts, and Thomas seems to control the radical judges that Trump appointed. So he's basically got Alito, Gorsuch, Coney Barrett, and himself. There's at least four of them that seem to be in some kind of rebellion with the chief justice. And then on top of that, on Thursday's hearing by the House Select Committee investigating January the 6th, we're learning uh, so much about the activities of Trump and his coup attempt via John Eastman, but we're also learning that this rogue attorney with these bizarre legal theories had a lot of communication with Virginia Thomas, Ginny Thomas, the wife of the Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. And incidentally, Clarence Thomas was the only justice in an eight-to-one decision to vote against the order by the January 6th committee for the White House, Trump White House, to turn over documents that they required. So there seems to be an obvious link there, isn't there, that you've got Justice Thomas, the only dissenting voice, in handing over Trump's documents to the January 6th committee, uh, and his wife talking with the the coup plotter, gave this bogus legal theory for the coup. There's no ethics standards in the Supreme Court, I believe. I mean, under any reasonable organization... Thomas would be booted out in a heartbeat, wouldn't he? So the the first thing I would say to that is, if we want a country where women, people of color, 
LGBTQ folks have any rights are treated with dignity as equal citizens, then neither Thomas nor Roberts can be controlling this court and the future of American law. And so we absolutely have to expand the court to wrest away control from them. So that's number one. But if you want to look at just a perfect uh, example of the utter lawlessness at display on this court right now, whether it is overturning half a century of precedent upholding uh, individuals' fundamental rights to bodily autonomy um, because of uh, political machinations, maneuvers, and Republican policy preferences, or if you want to look at the fact that we have a sitting justice, Justice Thomas, whose spouse is involved in an effort to subvert our democracy, and then that justice not only doesn't recuse himself from cases involving that plot to subvert democracy, instead he votes to hide evidence of it to protect his wife and their other cronies and plotters. I mean, it's the stuff of fiction, except it is happening right now on the stage of American democracy. And frankly, it's terrifying. So what then, I don't want to paralyze our audience. I mean, I guess a lot of people sort of know that there's something dreadfully wrong with the country and there's a great deal of hope and expectation that the January 6th committee will right some of these wrongs and we just don't know because Trump is a career criminal, has been one step ahead of the sheriff all of his business and political life. Um, whether he'll dodge another bullet or not, we don't know, but the evidence that the January 6th committee is putting before the public is just so overwhelming, you just have to wonder whether we're in an alternative universe here. But in terms of your organization, Take Back the Court, you've talked about how you can expand the court and there's no reason why the executive branch and the, and the Congress, as long as they're controlled by the Democrats, can do that. But I guess the other message is that the Democrats have got to vote and the independents have got to vote and the disaffected Republicans have to vote because you have to have a kind of mandate, don't you, from the public to make these changes. You know, in a democracy, the power is supposed to belong with the people. Uh, and when we come together to take that power, to, to act together, to act together in service of democracy, we can make the changes that we need to make. And so to your listeners, I would say, absolutely, this is not the time to be paralyzed. It's a frightening time. It's an enraging time, but it's time for us to act. Um, so, it, it, you know, it's, it's time for us to create the democracy that we want to live in. Uh, and that means acting to rein in this out-of-control Supreme Court that's trying to rule us. So just a, a couple of days ago, um, I spoke with the Yale Law Professor Samuel Moyne, who's an advisor to your organization, uh, Take Back the Court. And he is also, um, I mean, I don't think he's, he's against the idea of expanding the court, but he also feels that there should be term limits so what's the viability of that, getting term limits? Because I, I think America is the only country in the, among the democracies uh, that have rule of law where you have lifetime tenure for judges. 
So there are so many reforms uh, that our judiciary needs, that the Supreme Court needs, uh, and that is certainly one of them. And the way that I look at it is this. We, We are in a crisis right now, and Supreme Court expansion is the first step in stopping that crisis that wrests control away from the right-wing ideologues on the court who will do everything they can to prevent other reforms um, from being sustained if they're enacted. So once we have expansion, once we have that in place, we can look at term limits, we can look at ethics reform, we can look at all of the things that we need to restore integrity to this institution where it is so badly lacking right now. Um, but, But all of that work needs to come together and it rests on having a court that won't overturn um, all of those reforms in the self-aggrandizing interest of their own power. But what happens then uh, if you expand the court and then the Republicans would feel the need for vengeance and reciprocity, and if they were ever to come back into power, frankly, I, after what the January 6th committee is revealing, I'm I just don't know how anybody would vote for them, but uh, they've got underway such massive vote of suppression that they could, in fact, create a one-party state. So not only are we in jeopardy because of this right-wing court, we're in jeopardy because of Trump's GOP is is literally modeling itself on the, on the autocratic fascist uh, hero of the Republican right, which is Hungary's uh, Viktor Orban, who has created a one-party state. So is there a danger in stacking the court, to go back to Roosevelt, that once you start that, the other side can reciprocate? The danger here would be to look at the crisis we're facing and not do anything about it. Uh, Expanding the court is, frankly, unpacking it. Republicans have packed it, they've stacked it, they've manipulated it, they've changed the size from nine to eight when they had the blockade uh, against Merrick Garland uh, during uh, President Obama's presidency. Um, And, you know, I think what we need to do here and the important thing to do here is to act while we can, to sit back and say, we're going to do nothing um, to address the human rights crisis this court is creating because we're afraid that in the future, Republicans might act uh, to try to seize some power for themselves. They seize power for themselves left and right, no matter what Democrats do. And unilateral disarmament uh, can't be the approach that we take. Well, I thank you so much for joining us. I hope our audience understands uh, how critical the clear and present danger is from this court. And thank you, Sarah lipton Lubet. Thank you so much. And again, I've been speaking with Sarah lipton Lubet, who's the executive director of the Take Back the Court Action Fund, who for nearly two decades has been an advocate for reproductive freedom, gender equity, and progressive change. Most recently, she served as vice president for reproductive health and rights at the National Partnership for Women and Families. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters. I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Asher Price. If you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. 
Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or to publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past nine Who'll ever know how much she loved them so That dark night alone in America I'm not afraid to